Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and I'm really pleased to see all of you here this evening. Uh, I wanted to make a couple of announcements before um, I introduce uh, Lucy. Um, on the table in the back, there are copies of the library's calendar of events. You can also find out what's going on here at the Pratt by checking our rep website, prattlibrary.org. But in the calendar, there are a few things that um, were planned after we went to press, and I wanted to tell you about those. Um, on Thursday, June 7th, at the Orleans Street branch, it's at Orleans and Central Avenue, we're going to be hosting the African-American romance writer Brenda Jackson, and that will be at 6.30 p.m. Uh, on Sunday, June 10th, here at the Central Library down in the, in the Central Hall downstairs, we're going to be hosting a reading for the singer Lettucey. Um, that'll be at 3 p.m. She's not going to be singing. She's going to be talking about her new book. Uh, she'll be singing later in the month at Pier 5. Uh, and a, a very special event in June, uh, we're going to be opening a pho photography exhibit uh, celebrating the life of Lucille Clifton, poet Lucille Clifton. This is celebrating her 75th. She, if she were, had lived, she would be 75 this year. And on the 14th of June, we're having the opening program for that exhibit. It will be, again, downstairs in Central Hall. And we'll um, feature readings by some wonderful poets like Nikki Giovanni, Afa, Michael Weaver, uh, Michael Glazer, the former Maryland Poet Laureate, and um, some others whom you probably recognize. So that's the Thursday, July 14th uh, at 7 p.m. downstairs. And finally, one last um, reminder, tomorrow evening, for those of you who read um, the Millennium Trilogy by Stieg Larsson, uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and all those um, wonderful summer books, um, Stieg Larsson's longtime partner, Ava Gabrielson, will be here tomorrow night, uh, here in this room at 6.30. She, last year she published a memoir about her life with Stieg Larsson, and it's coming out in paperback, and so we're very fortunate to have her here in Baltimore tomorrow evening. So that's the end of my, uh, my announcements, and uh, we're very pleased to uh, welcome back again this year the um, Writing Outside the Fence uh, community workshop participants, and we enjoyed having you all so much last year, and we're really pleased that you're uh, able to come back this year. I would like to tell you that um, all of our programs are taped, and they're podcast from the, from the library's website, so you'll be able to hear yourself probably tomorrow or the next day um, on the library's website. And all you do is go to the, the, the main page and type in podcasts, and then it'll be probably the first one that comes up. So it's my pleasure to welcome Lucy Bucknell to the podium, and she's going to be introducing all of the readers this evening. Lucy? You know the order you're reading in, so I won't into. Hi, Mike. I won't interfere by stepping in each time. Just come up and introduce yourselves as your turn comes. Um, last year, just by chance, I had come across a really wonderful quote to open the reading. Um, 
And chance being chance, this year I did not come across one and had to do a deliberate search and so came across many, many quotes and had to narrow it down and contrive this little introduction that would include the quotes I liked. But in looking up writers on writing, at the top of every alphabetical list is Matthew Arnold, who wrote, have something to say and say it as clearly as you can. That is the only secret. Um, And I particularly like that because years ago I had a friend who used to advise, have something to say, say it, shut up. Those were his three rules. Um, And what seems to follow these lists of rules and what applies especially well to our workshop with its wonderfully unruly voices is a Somerset mom line. There are three rules for writing. Unfortunately, no one can agree on what they are. Um, So never mind about rules. We're not good at them. Uh, I will say all the writers here work very hard, refine, shape their perceptions, the usual rational elements of process. Um, But we don't seem to be a workshop that celebrates discipline so much as magic. Um, Something ineffable that happens between artists, uh, that happens in a community, and a community that has hung together for six years, speaking of magic. a community willing to share and be brave, a group of writers who really want to hear and see each other and be surprised by each other and moved by each other. Um, Writing in this workshop isn't a contest, it's an invitation. Um, And as I suppose really it is everywhere, a way of being human and of making contact human to human. So along those lines, two more quotes, um, one for each branch of the river from Minnie Bruce Pratt, I often think of a poem as a door that opens into a room where I want to go. And last, to really begin the reading, from Scott Fitzgerald's notebooks, draw your chair up close to the edge of the precipice, and I'll tell you a story. So Patrick will be the first reader. And again, thank you so much, everyone, for coming back for six years and for attending this reading tonight. Thank you, Lucy, for this opportunity. And um, my name is Patrick, better known as P.A. Trick, which stands for Perception, Angelic, and Treasures Received in Conceiving Knowledge. Um, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and um, I, pretty much, I pretty much wrote this piece about a typical Saturday early morning in Brooklyn, New York. I named it Identity Crisis. I feel gray. I'm not blue, nor am I red. I am gray. I'm not black, and I'm not white. A wise man told me I just need to pray. I said to him, you must be crazy, because where I'm from, it's hot as hell, and the sun don't shine on my block, yet the rains fall without any clouds in sight. And I walked out the house with no umbrella or no raincoat. Basically, I can't afford them. So I was soaked up in tears from the pain and suffering I absorbed. I made it to the corner store that is owned by a Latin family. I picked up the morning newspaper. The front page headline read, The drought continues. The growing fatherless families will spread to communities near you. I said to myself, wow, I made the newspaper. 
I walked up to the counter and said, Que pasa, my favorite South, Afri- South American family? The guy at the counter said, Hey, man, my family and I are from Brazil. So I said, Okay, Boricua, now I know. He said, Listen to me, Boricua is Puerto Rican. I told you I'm Brazilian, and my name is Jesus. So I looked at his name tag, and I said, so why your tag says Jesus on it? <laughs> it's pronounced Jesus, I said. I said, okay, Jesus, you cool with me, man. So I paid for my newspaper and asked for a plastic bag so my paper won't get wet. I walked out and decided to go to the bagel shop on the next block. I usually enjoy eating the bagel while I'm reading my newspaper. So I went to the bagel shop, and I said, Hello, Mr. White Man. How you doing? Can I have two bagels with butter and jelly? He was like, Okay. As he was fixing my bagel, he looked at me. He's like, He said, Listen, man, you come here almost every other day, and you call me Mr. White Man. My name is Mr. Goldberg, and I'm Jewish. Like, okay, Mr. Goldberg, my bad, my bad. So I figured he said he was Jewish. So I figured all white people come from Europe. So I asked him, how is it in Europe? So he said, actually, I'm from Israel. I could tell you about Israel, but not much about Europe. I'm like, Israel, that sounds cool. So I said, Israel, that's, that's, that has something in common with me. I guess you're from Israel, and I like to keep it real. So he fixed my bagel with butter and jelly. I paid him for the bagel, and I walked off. Since it was raining outside, I decided I might as well pick up something to eat for later on so I won't have to come back outside in the rain. There's a Chinese store right across the street from the bagel shop. I walk inside the Chinese store and said, Kanishiwa, my favorite Asian family. Can I have four wings and fried rice? The guy looked at me and said, Kanishiwa is Japanese. And I'm not Chinese, I'm Korean. So I look at the menu, I'm like, why do you have Chinese food on top of the menu? He's like, listen, man, I bet you think Chicken wings and fried rice is Chinese food, too. i like, come on, man. What's going on here today? So he said it'll be $4.50 for the four wings and fried rice. I was like, wow. Just yesterday, just the other day, it was like $3. He said the price went up. It's four fifty today. I said, I only have $3. Hook me up. He's like, no. Pay four fifty or don't buy. So I decided to walk off. And um, I figured to myself, I'll go somewhere where I could get some food for free. I have a buddy of mine from school. His name is Vinny. And um, his pops own a pizzeria store. And he usually hooked me up with free pizza. So I walked down the block to the pizzeria shop where my friend Vinny usually worked that is owned by his pops. So I walk inside the pizzeria shop. I did not see Vinny. I said, how you doing, Mr. Paulie? He said, hey, hi, Patrick. What brings you on here? Like, I was just looking for um, Vinny. And he's like, Vinny's in the library studying where you should be. 
like, yeah, we do have a test coming up, but I'm going to study at home. He's like, okay, what would you like? I said, let me have two slices with extra cheese. And um, while he was preparing my slice, I asked Mr. Pauly, how was it growing up in Europe? And he stated, well, I can't tell you much about Europe, but um, I was born and raised in Italy. I could tell you about Italy. So I'm like, cool, that sounds great. Like, well, Italy is an old nation, and the capital of Italy is Rome, but I was born in a small town named Sicily. I'm like, wow, you Sicilian, that sounds cool. And he was like, it's not what you think it is, Patrick. It's not like the mob movies you see on TV or at the movies. It's a very family-oriented community that gets along very well. I'm like, wow, that sounds great. Sounds different from the movies, like you said, but, hey, one day I would like to visit Sicily. And I'm like, yeah, Patrick, maybe one day you will. Maybe one day. So he fixed my pizza. He put it in the bag. And before I could reach in my pocket to pull out the money, he stated, it's on the house. You don't have to pay. I was like, cool. And he stated, I know my son be giving you free pizza all the time, but I'm okay with that. I know you and my son are good friends, and y'all get along very well. And at times you come in the evening and help him out with cleaning up the place and everything. So I don't have a problem giving you free pizza. So i like, Mr. Pauly, you all good in my book. That's great. So now I got some pizza for later on. I got my bagel, and I got a newspaper to read. I start walking towards back home. And as I got on my block, I noticed two black guys walking my direction. As they, as they got close to me, about five feet, each one of them pulled out a gun. One of them had a 22, the other one had a 38. They told me to give me, the, give me your money. I said to myself, wow, this is crazy. I got about $3 in my pocket, and I got some food. And y'all going to rob me for that? I'm like, listen, guys. A king had to die just so my black ass could walk this street in peace. So do not think I'm going to be afraid of y'all two over here. And besides, fuck that little 2238 caliber. I'm more of a 4445 Tech 9 sort of shotgun type of guy. <laughs> Instantly, they dropped their hand and said, You all right? You all right? You could go. So I made it home safe and sound and um i had my gun on me so i pulled it out and i thought to myself i was like wow one day this gun going to get me in more trouble than i could handle but then again if i didn't have this gun on me most likely i would have been robbed and at worst shot so it kind of does serve its purpose i thought to myself well the gun is good to have but the fact of the matter is, my mouth is my gun, my tongue is the trigger, my words is the bullets, and when I speak, I spit fire in the air. And it, it might just hit anybody, and at that point, it'll just be another man down. Guilty or innocent, there's no justice for all. I've been through it all. I was born a slave. And through the mind games they play, I'm still a slave. 
I don't know. Am I a nigga or am I colored? Am I a Negro or am I a black man? I don't know, I thought to myself. So I sat down and began to eat on my bagel and opened the newspaper. And on the third page, the article in reference to the fatherless families, there was a chart showing that the majority of black families is being raised with single parent household. And the rate of those families is greater than all other nations. And pretty much, well, they refer to them as African-Americans. So I said to myself, wow, that's what country I'm from. I'm from Africa. I didn't realize how ignorant that sounded, Africa being the country I'm from. Because actually, Africa is a continent which consists of various multiple countries with various different cultures. Damn, I feel great. And thank you for being here. And, you know, one of the things that I really enjoy about being one of the writers with writing outside the fence, my colleagues like Patrick. And um, my story, um, I think, is going to be quite different, but um, it's all the same because it's about understanding. It's about understanding who we are and to try to translate that so that everybody is touched by something that we read. And uh, so with that, I'm going to share with you a um, true life story of mine, and it's called Love Affair. There is something extraordinary about Booba with the big brown eyes I have vivid memories of that unusual moment when she allowed me to look deep and long into those liquid pools. We were caught up in that moment as we made eye contact and connected in a visceral sort of way. It was a silent world that only Booba and I shared. It was really, really, and truly uncanny. She spoke silently to me, and she said, I am sick, and I dislike being insulin-dependent. I watched and listened intently when she held my gaze and continued. My master takes really good care of me, but I'm worried that I'm a burden. I'm worried about that because I'm a diabetic. I was feeling her sadness and began to stroke her thick brown coat tenderly. I lost all contact. Excuse me for a moment. Suddenly she rolled over and offered me her silky white underbelly, a token, I'm sure, of her unconditional trust in me. She returned my gaze and revealed a well-kept secret. 
I am lonely. And then she disengaged from the meeting of our eyes. I lost all contact with time except for the mission ahead of me. It seemed that I had entered into an indescribable space that would be difficult to place words onto it. I wanted to reconnect with this animal to let her know that I cared. I gathered her comb and brushed and brushed her coat until it was a shiny golden color. Boba, the dog, with the cute puppy ears and our uncommon bond. She looked at me and trotted off into the yard to her favorite spot under the shady oak tree. I admit, I have to say, and I wonder sometimes if she misses me as much as I miss her since I visit infrequently. Goodbye, my love, until the great spirit allows us to meet again. Thank you. Hmm? Oh, my name is Kay Adler. And I thought that since we are in the Edgar Allan Poe room, uh, I'm also a photographer. And so this is a photograph I took maybe about 20 years ago when I was a student at MICA, the Maryland Institute College for the Arts. And this is the tombstone of Edgar Allan Poe. So I'm going to pass it around just so you can see it. And um, you can go and visit his grave site anytime you choose. It's on Pratt Street, directly across from the University of Maryland Hospital. Good evening. My name is Russell, and um, a few weeks ago, a friend of mine, she, I ran into her, and she said, I'm, I'm going to this writing class up on Domino. I was like, writing class? So she said, yeah. I said, well, can anybody come? She said, yeah, come join us. And um, when I got there, they were writing stories and things, and I said, well, I'm a bit of a writer already. And... Um, I'm going to share this piece with y'all. I'm going to tell you how I wrote it. I was working in a, I don't like to say nursing home, but a rehabilitation center, we'll put it that way. And they were watching Oprah Winfrey. And they would, she, the subject was interracial dating. And the girl jumped up and said, Oprah, it don't matter if you're red, orange, yellow, blue, or green. If you love somebody, they should be able to love you back and you love them any kind of way. And I was like, I walked by and I was like, wow, she just named every color in the rainbow. <laughs> and I was like, love is a rainbow of colors. And I sat down and I came up with this piece. Love is a rainbow of colors. Love is a rainbow of colors. It exists in the world to be shared with all others, white, black, missus and misters, for we are all brothers and sisters. It is in each of us and is meant to share. If someone makes you happy, show them you care. Love is what's shared between fathers and mothers, for love exists in a rainbow of colors. Love is shown to us in varying degrees. 
There's a love for you out there and someone to fulfill your needs. The definition of love is not written in black and white. You'll know when you're in love and when the time is right. Some classify love within a specific race. Don't be so narrow-minded, for it is such a waste. Love may not be found in one race or creed, but can be found in another. Love exists in all races, creeds, and colors. If for some reason you have a special preference, remember these lines. Feel free to use them as a reference. The world would be a better place if we could all love one another. For love exists in us all in a rainbow of colors. That's it. Thank you. That's my first time reading. I'm too nervous. Oh my God. Hello, everybody. I'm Irene Trueheart. First of all, I want to thank Barbie for his glasses, because they were much needed. Um, this writing is something I was experimenting with. It was a lot of fun for me, but thinking about giving it to you guys is making me really nervous, but I'm going to try to move through it. And um, I'm not real good with titles, but I'm, I think I'm going to call this one The Diary and Song of a Hopeless Romantic. Centrifugal force. It is a force that moves us outward in a circular pattern. But unless the force to pull you outward is greater than the force pulling you back, you will go round and round in an endless circle. Everything changes. Nothing stays the same. It just all depends on which way you'll go when you finally break from the chain. Eva lay in bed listening to her smooth grooves. Michael Jackson was singing, I'll be there. And she was in her zone just imagining him reaching out his hand to hers. A smile came on her face as she thought of how this fine piece of sugar wanted nothing more than, than to be by her side. She lived a life of fantasy through her 45s. She had one mind, and that was to be loved, for someone to be there just for her and build his world of dreams around her. She wanted to be the cream in his coffee and the butter on his toast. I'll be there to protect you. With an unselfish love that respects you, just call my name, I'll be there. I found myself still looking for it, the one who would love me with all his heart. Why did I let the good ones get away? There weren't many, but I was too afraid to be forward. Lewis, Marvin, Greg, Jean, these were my buddies in my senior class. Being an only girl, I was always able to fit in with the guys. They seemed to get along with me much more than the girls did. I knew how to relate. Greg had asked me out before, but the chemistry just wasn't there. Gene flirted with me, but it was all in fun. We all knew that he would get beat down if Patricia ever caught him trying to talk to anybody. Lewis was the one who, was, who always had something wise to say behind those dark shades. And Marvin... My Marvin was just cool. 
I guess I liked him from the very beginning. I think I appreciated his company so much that I didn't want to mess it up, even thinking about romance. He wasn't real flamboyant, but he had the best moves at the dances. The girls in class were so jealous when we danced together. Eyes were rolling, but I loved dancing and so did he. He couldn't keep us off the floor. Baby, baby, let's get together. Honey, hush, me and you. And do the things, oh, do the things that we like to do. Do a little dance, make a little love. Get down tonight, get down tonight. (laughs) He was kind of quiet, but had a way of communicating just what he wanted you to know. There was an easy way about him. He reminded me of Marvin Gaye, so smooth and all. And I don't even know if he could sing. But if his voice was like his talk, I believe he could. I never even knew he liked me until he asked me to go to the prom. He came to my house the week before. I can still see him leaning in that doorway with his kangaroo cap relaxed slightly to the side and that sexy one-dimpled smile. I was just melting all over myself. I wanted to say yes. I wanted to say yes, but I couldn't. My boyfriend already knew it was his obligation to take me. I will always regret that decision. I don't even remember how it happened, but before he left, Marvin pulled me to him and kissed me. His moves were suggestive, not forceful. He allowed you to give in to it. It was, and still is, the sweetest kiss I have ever had. It was so gentle but so, so sensuous. As our lips met, I felt like I was in a dream. I knew it. I just knew he could kiss. It was our first kiss, our only kiss. He probably knew it was the last chance to show how he really felt about me. Always the loyalist, I let him get away. I still can't believe it. Why have I never just gone for what I wanted? Why do I passively let life take control of me instead of me taking control of life? Maybe I care for him so much he gave me because he get, excuse me because he gave me that innocent kind of relationship that a woman needs before things move to another level. I think I was afraid of messing that up. That's something most women today don't know anything about. You know, just being friends, understanding one another appreciating one another. You should be able to talk about something other than sexing it up. Well, my boyfriend Cleveland was a great guy, but I think my relationship with him was truly codependent. He was really into me, but I think I just didn't want to be alone. He gave me some stability to my life, though. There were other good things he gave me. He always called me lady. Who's that lady? Who's that lady? Beautiful lady. Who's that lady? Lovely lady. Who's that lady? Fine lady. If he ever called me anything else, it wasn't to my face. I have to admit that I did some things that would make him want to call me otherwise. He took me to see the Delphonics, one of my favorite groups. I still don't know how he pulled it off since we were both underage. He gave me all of his time and attention and was a really sweet guy, but I figured out I didn't love him 
the day I thought I was pregnant. I really freaked like my world was going to end. It was my biggest relief to find that I wasn't. When he went into the service, I took it as a betrayal. How could he leave me alone like that? How can you mend a broken heart? Tell me how can you stop the rain from falling down? How can you stop the sun from shining? What makes the world go round? In my desperation, I fell for James, a smooth talker. He was rugged, but I liked his swagger. He wore me down until I just gave in. I got hooked into the pull of a bad boy. I wanted to feel his strength. I wanted to feel protected. He kept asking me to be with him, so I moved in. And it was great, feeling like I belonged to somebody. Until one day, I saw one of my friends downtown and said hello. He told me that I was never to speak to another man in his presence. It bothered me, but I said, I can live with that. But that wasn't the end. Every day there was something else. Never better, always worse. Then he would run the street for days, out sleeping for other women, who I thought was someone who could cover me, left me out for the rain and the storm. You said when a storm came that you would be there with your umbrella to block the rain. You said you protect me from heartache, pain, lies, loneliness, and misery. You said you'll tear down the walls that were in the way. You promised things would be okay. And I stood there in the freezing cold. And I waited for you, but you never showed. After the real James showed up, I was never made to feel safe or secure. I lived in a fantasy of love because it's what kept me alive through all the, the abuse. I did everything to keep that ideal of love alive. I wouldn't admit that all the torment I was going through had nothing to do with love. Here I was, going round the circle of the earth, trying to make myself who he wanted. I shouldn't be afraid when I hear his footsteps. How can you really love somebody that makes you feel that way? He made me believe that nobody else could ever love me. You didn't need to do anything wrong to make him angry. You just had to exist. For years, I told myself that it was my fault. If I were just more understanding, more patient, I wouldn't upset him so. But my life with him was just an illusion. There was no forward movement. It was like being trapped in a loop. I've been hearing the voices again. You need to wake up. There's life outside of this. Then it happened. I became what he never expected me to be. You really do reap what you sow, although I ask God to be merciful to him. I really do love him, but not as a lover. You know, change doesn't always come with observation. Sometimes you don't really know when the change came, but the force has been building piece by piece and moment by moment. He had asked me for some money that day. All I had was the money to pay the bills, but he took it anyway. That day, the chain finally popped, and I went flying out into space. While I was out there, I saw some things. I saw that nobody could really love me like God, 
and he wanted to know why I was afraid to make a move when he was there to back me up. Before, I couldn't see outside of James. Now I see everything but him. I see the life I still have time to live, and that if I never had another man, I need to love myself. That was the problem in the first place, but I was meeting people who were starting to tell me things about taking responsibility and not being a victim. It was up to me, even the excuses. I walked out that day, straight out the door, and I never turned back. I could hear his threats almost in an echo, but he never moved. I didn't feel so comfortable staying in Philadelphia, so I moved to D.C. I had a good job, a few faithful friends, and peace. Somebody invited me to a 70s party one Saturday night, and I thought it would be a blast to boogie to my old songs. Man, the memories of those grooves. I did the bump, the hustle, and the James Brown slide. You couldn't tell me anything. The tempo slowed down, and I wasn't even sure I remembered how to slow dance. I took a seat, and then one of my favorite songs came on. Al Green, Let's Stay Together. My best friend taught me how to do the two-step to it. I got up just content to dance all by myself. Then this guy starts walking towards me and extends his hand. As I take it, he gives me a gentle tug in his arms. I guess he was feeling the song, too. His embrace felt so warm and comforting that I laid my head against his chest. He started singing. I, I'm so in love with you. Whatever you want to do is all right with me. Because you make me feel so brand new. And I want to spend my whole life with you. Things just ain't the same, baby. Since we've been together, loving you forever is what I need. Let me be the one you come running to. I'll never be untrue. Oh, baby, let's, let's stay together, loving you whether, whether times are good or bad, happy or sad. Hello, Eva. This voice, it was familiar, but from where? I looked up at him. And I recognized that one dimpled smile. Marvin, oh my God, Marvin, I always knew you could sing. What are you doing here? I'm doing the same thing you're doing here, dancing. But you know what? I really am still in love with you. Well, neither the story nor the dance ever ended. I didn't let him get away this time. He was mine. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off of you. 
You be like heaven to touch. I want to hold you so much. And long last love has arrived. And I thank God I'm alive. You're just too good to be true. Can't take my eyes off of you. <laughs> I hope you have Hello, my name is Abdullah Monet. My pieces are kind of short, so I have um, three, if that's okay. <clears throat> this one's called, I just wrote this today. <clears throat> my muse left me. My muse left me to write on my own. She's packed her bags, made a prayer, and said these words. Live and love hard today. She spoke in earnest truth, knowing you can do this. You really don't need me. Do what you do. That's what I heard, though it's not what she actually said. My muse left me today. She said there had already been enough time spent making words fly across screens, letters playing in the wind of my dreams. She asked me from inside my thoughts if I really believed. If not, then it all been for naught. Here I am with this keyboard beneath my fingers, nimble, Mind swollen with possibilities. I heard the call in the wind. Speak to the voice. Listen to that baby growing in her mother's womb. Tell the story of that boy away from his family waiting to know his love is real. Tell them about those children, those women feelings captured in a maze of fears, keeping them from believing, nor ever touching who I am. My muse left me with words from her heart. Letting me know she believed in me, but I had to believe in myself. That's one. <clears throat> we speak in tongues and write scripts. This is called a poet's pen, I'm sorry. We speak in tongues and write scripts with. Mm, mm. We speak in tongues and write scripts, make rhythms as sound bites of disconnected hearts. Find beats to tap dance around pain, belittled by the onus of far-reaching dreams that make writers sing in double-cleft space bars, a cacophonous room full of acoustic echoes following from, flowing from my, uh, mind bends, measured by Mandelbrot sets. Chaos found its end inside a poet's pen, where harmony resides. Okay. I don't. I, I write. I don't read. So this is real different for me. Um, <laughs> so here's this. Uh, it's called marriage. She cries in silence sometimes. Her heart yearns for love. She knows is there, yet the expression is often left unspoken, even left in a gesture almost unnoticed. The light of her eye reaches past these moments with a presence of majestic beauty. Soft sounds of I love you creep into her heart again after the hollow, somber ways of indifference leaves, bidding her spoken words of "Assalamu alaikum, peace be unto you. Laughter finds its way resting around the embrace of little arms as this seems enough to welcome with open heart and mind the planter again and again. 
Each day, each night, he leaves and comes back. Sleep, often little. She lies awake, wondering if her words could move him, free him from the chamber that has encased his heart from feeling the longing of her feminine energy. She waits in silence from the idea of rage, capturing her for a moment, and in one breath, breaking the peace he bids so easily in ritual. He knows she is special, but the, his own embrace will not let go long enough to speak. So silence holds them for now. Love in the whisper of a child keeps peace from being a shadow. What's felt in the small watches of the morning in prayer keeps her eyes watching for the new day to bring another reason to believe in what has joined them. So she waits till his heartbeat hears her own inside of him. Waterfalls, tears drop free. Hi, my name is Karen Bennett, and this uh, I wrote in a class. I don't remember if it was through uh, this group or at another uh, at another meeting sort of class, but here it is. <laughs> I've spoken, doggone it. <laughs> oh, this is titled "Lie, Cheat, and Steal" by Karen Bennett. I crossed over to the dark side at 13 years old. I was innocuous in a shapeless black tank swimsuit, the standard costume for the Indian Creek diving team in 1957, and incidentally, the black was perfect for the devil's child bride. My thin bathing cap barely covered my horns. The coach yelled, Hey, Karen, come over here. We need you to compete tonight in the 12 and under age group. What? Cheat? I was over 12. I was a whole 13 years and three months. And even if I looked 12 and I didn't, what 13-year-old wants to pretend she's only 12? <laughs> also, anyone who knew me from past competitions knew I couldn't still be 12. Come on. I wondered what he was thinking. How did he think we could get away with this big fat lie? Alas, it wasn't up to me. He was the grown-up and I was the kid. I was the patsy, the shill, the straight man. I did what I was raised to do, obey. I lied for the coach. Cue figurative thunder and lightning. <laughs> when it was my turn, I climbed on the one-meter diving board in the brightness of the tall nighttime pool lights. I prepared to do a liar's dive, a cheater's dive. <laughs> I stood tall with my chest high, a B-cup, plenty big for 12 years old, in readiness to perform. I squinted out beyond the limit of the pool to the invisible dot of concentration as I had done hundreds of times before. I was thinking, liar. <laughs> what was the big deal? I had lied before. Oh, yes, a rebob I had. I was a kid and all kids lied. I'm sorry about that little person right there. <clears throat> Heck, my lying was even officially documented by Mrs. French, my third grade teacher. She penned blue ten cursive letters in the comment section of my report card. I was eight and had not yet learned to decipher longhand, 
But I found out later that afternoon when I proudly presented my report card full of A's and B's to my sister, a fifth grader, who was holding a seat for me on the school bus. My sister's face opened in surprise. She said, Mom is going to kill you. (laughs) What? Why? I have a good report card, I exclaimed. She pressed her lips together and shook her pigtails, pointing her finger to the mysterious word-written dishonesty. Well, here's my side. (laughs) If someone had asked me directly, Karen, did you steal cookies from the cookie jar? I would absolutely have owned up to it with an unqualified yes if I had. But of course, the instance never came up because mommy always had plenty of cookies and better yet, cake and pie at the ready. So stealing cookies was strictly made up. And for instance, in fourth grade, if I'd cheated and sneaked a look at the times tables printed on the sliding white thingamajig on my green pencil box during an arithmetic test I had, and if someone had caught me, I I didn't, I would have confessed, yes, I looked at 9 times 8 equals 72 because I was that honest. My gap in honesty was when was my bold face lying to my classmates about my horse, Prince, and his saddle with the green jewel and the pummel and the reins with silver tri- uh, triangular silver studs and how I rode my horse. And here's a picture of me on him. Mm-hmm. It was me on a pony ride at a fair. <laughs> a book writer would call it fiction. A nice old grandmother would think her grandchild's horse stories were just innocent, dedicated wishing. She might even brag that her little granddaughter was highly creative. But I had no granny to say nice things about me, and my old teacher was probably sick and tired of kids telling lies to each other. So she cured me by penning that blue clot on my report card. I was crushed and I was scared. I was mortified and guilty, and worse, I was a liar, liar, pants on fire. So when the swim coach called me to stand up there on the diving board looking like an overly big girl, possibly one with glandular problem, well, I hated that. My horse lies were just wishing out loud, for heaven's sake. No cookies were ever stolen, and by now my times tables were pretty much learned. No recent lying, no cheating. I'd been on the straight and narrow for five whole years. I'd turned over a new leaf. Well, hold on. I did have a little history of stealing, but just once. (laughs) Thank you, Linda, for being in the front row. (laughs) Um, Just once. I was almost five. And even then, I didn't deny the stealing I'd had a hand in, or honestly, a finger in. Well, two fingers. One day, when I was too big for an afternoon nap, Mommy and I walked downtown to Woolworths. She must have needed buttons or snaps or maybe combs for her hair. We stood next to the counter where one-inch-long plastic pencil sharpeners were heaped in a glass display case, waist level to adults, but eye level to me. Without anyone noticing, my nose pressed to the glass front of the booty. I stole a look to the right and then to the left, stretched my two fingers into the pile, and carefully rolled a green Pluto decaled sharpener into my palm. (laughs) Hey, that was simple. No alarm sounded. No one saw. No one scolded. I had just committed a crime, and it was easy. And I was obviously pretty good at it. Uh, The day after the pencil sharpener caper, I realized there was no joy in having copped a toy if I couldn't show it off. Because I was a preschooler with no true friends to brag to, oh, how it hurts me to tell this, but because my mother was my only person I saw every day and hence was my best friend, I had no choice but to show off to her. 
I remember standing in the kitchen, flipping the Disney design Pluto sharpener between my thieving little hands. At last, my mother noticed. She hollered, where did you get that thing? (laughs) Okay, the direct question was asked. I answered honestly, at Woolworths. When? More honesty. Yesterday. Well, we'll see about that. The next thing I know, she was dragging me to Woolworths again. She made a show of asking for the manager and was eventually sent to a quiet young lady who was probably not what my mother had in mind. I'm sure mommy wanted a meaner and scarier looking person to put the fear of decency into me. But the lady sweetly asked what she could do for my nice mother. My mother repeatedly jerked her head down and sideways in my direction. She made wide eyes toward me, indicating that I was the bad seed. She told the Woolworths employee in a well-rehearsed comment, This is my little girl. I'm returning the pencil sharpener she stole yesterday from your store. I know my mother was waiting for the young manager to hop in with, Oh, no, not that. She stole a pencil sharpener. Oh, how naughty of her. But the lady just sort of watched my mother's facial workings and bobbing head. She looked at me and said, You mustn't steal. Oh, well, I already knew that before I stole the sharpener. I just wanted it. I felt sorry for my mother because I upset her and sorry for the young lady who had no talent for speaking to children. In summation, I never lied again, not counting in sixth grade when I told Peggy Boone I loved her new sweater, and I didn't have to steal again except for borrowing my sister's gym suit when mine wasn't ironed. The announcer's voice boomed my first and last name over the public address system. Age 12 and under, on the one-meter board, executing a front dive in pike position, degree of difficulty 1.4. A silence dropped into the summer evening, as I am sure the spectators and judges thought, like hell, she's 12. (laughs) I straightened then took three evenly paced steps, swinging my arms up in a wide arc while bringing my right knee up to my chest for further upward momentum. Both feet hit the board and sent me flying high above the turquoise pool as I snapped forward and touched my pointed toes for the count of one, two, then straightened and sliced right through the water without my devil's tail making a splash or even a ripple. The end. Hello, hello. I am Bari Shabazz. Just to take one comment. Um, I write, but I don't read. You should read more. Okay. I'm going to... Just read, you know those pieces you write and you put them aside and you say, one day I'll do something with this stuff. And uh, so I'm going to read some of that. 
pieces of love ramblings. And this was a haku. If I ask you to meet me in a secret place, please open your heart. And this is the dance music of love. Come, take this love from me. This love belongs to you. I have given it to you freely to help you create your world of joy in heaven. I am full of love for you. I cannot keep your love until I openly allow you to give your love freely away to me. I can see the music of your love. I can hear the dance of your soul. I am the movement of all of your movements, harvested by cosmic goodness, recognized in the conception of rhythmic signals of spirits expressed in our feelings, emotions. We were inseparable from the first beginning of beginnings expressed as P, which evoked our souls to recognize its dual nature, masculine, feminine, operating at different levels of oneness, I perceive myself as part of your existence as you perceived yourself as part of my existence. We dance this collective movement in our souls, feeling movement married to sound, decoded in timeless universal relationships. Rehearse these steps, heartbeats of love, stamped into notes collectively repeated in rising, falling, climaxes of favors. As we dance our love of the universe, I am now your bringing forth as you have also brought me forth. I called you my queen and seek the pathway into your soul. You are rivers flowing from creation's origin. You speak and flower my world with sweet scents. You blink and my universe shivers with joys. You cry and oceans bewail the loss of your tears. I adore the light in the twinkle of your eyes. When you regard our mutual destiny I am in your sleep-filled night and daydreams, every dream prepared our union. I share myself with no closed doors. I call you my queen. I am ready to become your reality. You are ready to quantify the measure, to call 
me your king. Can I wrap you up in the cocoon of my world? Each morning I awake with thoughts of you. Each night I close my eyes to dream of you. I cannot control the way you make me feel. From the start you have poured your soul into my very being, bringing joy to my life. I would love you like no one else has ever been able to and cherish the treasure of your love. Just reflect and realize that the universe is revealing our love in the flow of creation and we have to just enjoy it. If my heart could freely choose how to spell out its rhapsody in all languages of man, even the languages of beasts, even the languages of plants, even the languages of all creation, could it say more pleasantly than the sweet scent of flowers, more loudly than the roar of the mighty Niagara Falls, more silent than the hummingbird and the frothing flow of volcanic lava. I love you in the facade of my heart you paint. What words cannot fulfill? What a million ports cannot approach, nor scratch the surface of interpretations. You do more with just a smile, with the lift and uplift of your lips, with asking eyes, welcoming heavenly passion I inspire, with daydreams, collages, dancing, with the hug of your special prayer. Forget the cunning of a musician's hands. Let me give voice and struggle and die with only an epitaph of song to pierce your heart and claim your yielding soul. Promises of love. Your absence is only a promise of happiness awaiting like buds, their spring blooming when touched by the smiling sun of your love in igniting strong emotions. How does the soul love? Somewhere lies the answer to all these eruptions of our feelings. Faded embrace. Love is given tolls from on high. Faded before our conception, on this journey began with wishes and longings birthed to run a deliberate course until we found each other and fulfilled our eternal embrace.
Now follow that act. funny that she started off with a quote, and I would like to um, say a quote from um, Ching Ching Chong. He would come out and they would ask, is any of you guys drunk? Because I sound so much better when you're drunk. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a title to this, um, but it goes a little something like this. Two middle-aged people, one male, the other female, together walks into the same supermarket with the same mission get some groceries and leave. But while there, a big altercation sets out right in front of them. When questioned, they asked, they were asked what happened between the cashier and the customer. Well, the female said it was the cashier's fault, but the male demand it was the customer's fault. Which leads me to ask you, have you ever wondered why we see things the way we see things. How two people can stay and be in the same place and see things differently. I've asked this question many times to many people. Some say that it's just the assumptions on the outsiders looking in, not knowing all the facts of the situation. Some say that it's just plain, flat-out misjudgment and not hearing everything from each partner, I'm sorry, partner. And, but people like myself says that it's the outlook on life that people see. You know, the difference. I personally think that the outlook on life changes things. I'll use myself as an example. Of course, I don't know what you see, but I know for sure that it's nothing like mine. When you walk out of this building, you see Baltimore City as is. When I go to open the doors to this building, I open my eyes to a cartoon coming to life. This plain, dry day in Maryland becomes an up-tempo animation. And with my hand still on the open door, I smile and look up at the baby blue sky that imitates the sea, swinging back and forth like a wave, and on the tip of the waves, it forms clouds, and the clouds create the warm wind that flies through buildings that quickly alarms me. You've just left an air-conditioned building. (laughs) I place my earphones into my ears, turning up the volume to its max, The grass that surrounds the building across the street begins to dance. You know, that popular dance, the snake, where you used to move your body like, you guessed it, a snake. The song, My My Lady Lumps, by the Black Eyed Peas are playing. And the cars, one red, one yellow, and a few more gathers in front of the grass, blocking my view like a crowd in a club. You know, like, once the performers start really getting into it. So, I let them have their fun. Still listening to my music, I search the area with my eyes. 
at the bus stop of the corner of Cathedral has people on it. And it looks like they're muttering the words to the song, my humps, my lovely lady humps. But they're not. And yes, it's funny, but that's not my destination. I turn on Saratoga where I admire the different food stores and beauty salons. On the beauty salons are various different pictures of women with different hairstyles, braids, weaves. They, ha they are black, they are gold, short, long, up, down. Or, my favorite, that one woman who has the short gold hair on one side and the braid that's, point, that's right in the middle, separating the long black flowing hair on the other side, that's my favorite. Getting on the, bu on the 19 bus stop, I still have time to see a group of people migrating from where they was to where they were going. I take out my earphones and sit by the window. During this 45-minute drive from here to home, I have the privilege to see the atmosphere change right before my eyes. Passing the inner harbor, you see art, the artwork of artists, different artists, crabs that grab your attention miles away before you even know what the images are really is. The atmosphere this atmosphere, my friends, is the atmosphere you want to spend time in, money, because it represents what's happening now and where you are going. Well, from there, just blocks, you hit what we call the hood. <laughs> and for no reason, the atmosphere changes. If you didn't have, if you didn't have to, you wouldn't spend a minute there let alone a dime. And the hood has art just as well, done by artists unknown and will remain unknown. Because unlike the art of the crab in the middle of the harbor near the bay where they are welcome, the RIP of your, co your dead cousin plastered on the side of somebody's apartment complex is not welcomed. But it's more than just graffiti some of them are pictures of our civil rights leaders, Mel Dr. King, Malcolm X, Harriet Tubman, and leaders in their own right, Biggie, Tupac, a little dash of Jimi Hendrix. To some, it's just graffiti, it's graffiti, but to him, it's his first piece of art. As I get home, well, it gets funnier. Because in my home, we relate to the same outlook on life. It's not where you were born. It was not where you was raised, but how you were raised. And yes, right before I go to sleep, I pop my two pills of lithium. That's okay. I don't mind my dreams in a slow place, in a slow motion. But as I see life... I see it in a fast pace, live, and in living color.
afternoon, everybody. I'm Monica. Um, I'm kind of new to the group, too. Um, a friend of mine invited me a couple of weeks ago, and, um, oh, you've already heard this story. Okay. Um, anyways, I was in one of the groups, and um, we started talking about childhood memories, and I started writing a story about a childhood friend. And I went home and I started writing on this some more, and this seems to be turning into a book. So I don't have the whole story, but I have a couple chapters that I'd like to share with you. And um, and it has to do with being one of the first black families in Baltimore to move up to Govins in the 1960s. So that kind of dates me, so you realize that I'm an elder person. Chapter 1. Sometimes, early in the morning, before the moon goes to bed and the sun wakes up and the city streets are quiet, except for some of the sounds of dope fiends still out and crackheads tripping through the alleys and this little Korean man that seems to get drunk every night and his dedicated wife who always comes to fetch him and people out who have nothing to say and people who just ain't saying nothing, trying to one-up each other for a bag of something or some money. My mind just back to 1961. If you're old enough, maybe you remember back when the city had rec centers and dances on Saturday night. We had the Afro-clean block and everybody had those tires made into planters and painted bright colors out in front of the stoop. Over in East Baltimore where we live, we played games in the street. Hopscotch and red light and mother may I and Early on Saturday morning, you could smell the sweetness from Virginia donuts all over the neighborhood. My cousins lived down in Perkins Projects, and it seemed like every week in church, they would tell me about somebody in Perkins getting in fights with somebody from Black House Projects. In 1961, that's how we saw things. There weren't any guns involved or drive-bys, and a boy for tattoo meant that he was in the Navy. One day, my father came home all excited. In fact, he seemed like Nellie Bell was excited, too. My father had this powder blue 56 Chevy that I thought was the dreamiest car, but one time he put this expensive gas in it at the gas station, and she choked and gasped for air and putt-putted all the way back home. So he named it after Roy Rogers' Jeep, Nellie Bell. Anyway, he came in the door like a millionaire. Doss, we moving uptown. Gleaming from ear to ear with a smile as wide as the Chesapeake Bay. Johnny, what are you talking about? You've been drinking again. You know you can't drink, my mother expressly exclaimed. My GI loan came through, and we're buying a house in Govins. I remember being so excited about moving to Govins, even though I didn't know exactly where Govins was. I knew the number eight streetcar went there. I remember... One time when I was about five, my father and my Uncle Shorty were laughing about all the white people in Govins, so I asked a question. I was always told, if you don't know something, never assume, ask. So being the inquisitive and sometimes quite precocious child I was, I was prone to ask, are we going to be living with white people? You would have thought that I had said a cuss word. (laughs) But there was a notable difference in the room, and I wish I could have taken some of that back. 
the look they gave me and the look that my mother had on her face was a look that was quite familiar. And then she sat me down to explain the Govins rules. Chapter 2. <laughs> Joseph was the German-Hungarian boy who sat next to me in Miss Costello's second grade class at Guilford Elementary School. If they would have had the Big Bang Theory back then, he would have been Sheldon. <laughs> Somehow, as fate would have had it, we happened to be the two smartest kids in the class, always racing each other to see who could raise their hands the fastest with the correct answers. The ensuing friendship was as inevitable as it seemed natural. He was a smart kid. I was a smart kid. It just seemed natural. When Joseph invited me to stop by his house to meet his grandmother on our way back home from school, I saw it as a wonderful opportunity to learn about another culture. After all, just months before, we moved into this almost all-white neighborhood, and although I had seen them on television and in books, I never really gotten to know anyone who was white. Besides, there were always these stories about the horrible things white people had done to black people, some of them in my family. This is my chance to investigate for myself. When I got to Joseph's house, I immediately noticed the differences in the neighborhood. The grass in front of the lawn had that smell of watermelon like out the park. And the fronts of all these houses were freshly painted. An old lady wearing a colorful dress full of flowers greeted us on Joseph's front porch. I remember him telling me that we had to go around back. I remember thinking in the back of my head, that was strange, but I never questioned why. Joseph, why do you have so many German soldiers and stuff in your room? I asked him when we were finally out of Granny's icy gaze. And does she always look like that? He said it had something to do with the war. My father and all my uncles were soldiers in the German army, he said. I know that they fought for the Nazis, but they were still my relatives. I guess I just understood that just because somebody in your family does something you don't agree with doesn't mean that they stop being in your family. It's kind of like my Uncle Leon. Hey, you want to learn how to say something in Hungarian? Joseph seemed suddenly excited. My grandmother would really like it if you said something to her in Hungarian. What am I supposed to say to your grandmother? He said, say, Kezi Shokalam. It means, good afternoon, how are you? Wow, really? Yes, now you try it. Kezi Shokalam. So in my best black Hungarian voice, I said, good afternoon to Joseph's grandmother. After she nodded approvingly, I left for home feeling I was ready to become an interpreter for the UN. <laughs> when I arrived home after school, my mother was already out on the porch waiting for me. Hmm, 20 minutes late. Where have you been? I walked Joseph home. He wanted me to meet his grandmother. This one of your new friends from school? Yes, ma'am. He sits next to me, and we're the two smartest kids in class. Really? Well, tell me something you learned today. Kezi <laughs> 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 
<laughs> the next thing that came is a slap heard around the world. By the time my head stopped spinning, I was in the middle of the next week. And yes, I can tell you from experience, my children were born silly. <laughs> that sounds like German to me. There'll be no German spoken in this house. So this Joseph is not only white, he's German. That means you crossed York Road. Evidently, you need a refresher course. Honey, sit down. You have to understand, we're one of the first black families to move to Govins. We cannot be seen on the west side of York Road unless we're waiting for the number eight streetcar, going to school, going to the store, or going to work. We cannot be seen above Winston Avenue, and we cannot be seen below 43rd Street. Sweetheart, we're not allowed to go into the Oreo cafeteria, and under no circumstances, never, ever, do I want to see you anywhere near that dirty, filthy, nasty Rex Theater. You know what kind of people go in that theater? There's sinful people that go in that theater. I never did understand why the Rex Theater was so dark, and then bearded, ugly-looking men always went in there, and the sign said, adults only. Why do they always look so constipated to the point of bursting? <laughs> or why my mother would ever think I would want to go in there? <laughs> Chapter 3. Before there was 9-1-1 and the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, and before there was the Viet Cong and the Soviet Red Scare and the Bay of Pigs, there were the German Nazis. And every week at 7 p.m. in our house, you could watch Sergeant Saunders played by Vic Morrow with his platoon defeat the entire German Nazi, whatever it was. What always confused me and still does was why I was supposed to root for a group of white men who didn't care about me, who was fighting another group of white men who didn't care about me. But I was being told that even though the American white men who don't care about me are still better than the German white men who don't care about me. Are you confused yet? Here I am sitting in class the next day next to Joseph, who I've been ordered not to talk to because he's part German. And the only thing my seven-year-old brain can think of is, how can I take the German out of him so we can still be friends? Which made no sense to me because I never saw Germans and blacks fighting anywhere on TV. So, how'd it go at home, Joseph asked me. I can't talk to you anymore because you're German, I answered back. Well, I'm not really supposed to talk to you either. My grandmother said you're a sforza. A what? A sforza. It just means black. Hey, Joseph, I got an idea. Remember the story about code breakers that we learned about? Why don't we just make our own code, and then no one will know we're communicating? So Joseph and I came up with this idea to make a code. My code name was Jody Kovaleski, and Joseph was Nevitz Nashevitz. <laughs> to be continued.
Good evening, everybody. My name is Cache. I'd like to share with you some of my journey and some of the experiences that I went through. Um, the first came about suddenly, and it came about tragically. But I had listened to a lot of things that were said to me, and um, I got this out of another song, so I hope I can share it with you. They kissed and said goodbye at the terminal gate. She said, you're going to be late if you don't go. He held her tight and said, I'll be all right. And I'll call you tonight to let you know. He bought a postcard. On the front it said heaven with a picture of the ocean and the beach. And the simple words he wrote to her said he loved her. And they told her how he'd hold her if his arms would reach. Wish you were here. Wish you could see this place. Wish you were near. Wish I could touch your face. The weather's nice. It's paradise. It's summertime all year. There's some folks we know. They say hello. I miss you so. I wish you were here. She got a call that night. But it wasn't from him. It didn't sink in right away. Ma'am, the plane went down. Our crews have searched the ground. No survivors found, she heard them say. But somehow she got a postcard in the mail that just said heaven with a picture of the ocean and the beach. And the simple words he wrote to her said he loves her and they told her how he'd hold her if his arms could reach. Wish you were here. Wish you could see this place. Wish you were near. Wish I could touch your face. The weather's nice. It's paradise. It's summertime all year. There's some folks we know. They say hello. I miss you so. Wish you were here. And in the midst of some of that darkness that I had experienced, I went even to a darker place. It's called addiction. My name is Addiction. I have something to tell you. It's nonfiction. Your name could be Harry, Gary, Phyllis, or Jane. Your story is the same. I'm cunning, baffling, insidious. That's okay. Don't take me serious. As you get to know me, things will just be dandy. And may feel cool, but in the end, I'll make you out to be the fool. That's because I rule. The process will be slow, and then it turns to a flow, you know. I'll give a little of this and a little of that until you can't turn your back. Though the course of time, who knows, you may turn to a life of crime. I told you, my name is Addiction. And the story is nonfiction and no contradictions. You might have some people in your life, a child, a husband, or wife. I just want your life. In the end, it could be jails, institutions, or death. That's right. I want your last breath. I can, however, be arrested, and this process has been tested, but I'll wait 
and get rested. People have tried to stay clean and serene, but I'll throw all kinds of things. You see, I'm baffling, insidious, cunning, and I want you to come running. Some people have decided to stay in that place that doesn't care about religion or race, but I want you to feel disgrace so you don't have to go back to that place. I'll give you that first taste, then it's off to the chase. Like I said, my name is Addiction, and this story is nonfiction. But even throughout all of that, I still believe something better, greater, and more loving than me. And when I couldn't find it in myself, somewhere, a greater spirit than the one I had possessed gave me a friend. Oh yes, that's how you make me feel, the way you tangle and toss my hair and practically sweep me off my feet. If I offer you my arms, would you pick me up? No doubt. We dance, we swirl. It's you and I in our own world. We twist, we turn, we've moved as one, even side by side. At times when I've been afraid or had doubt, which created fear, always you've calmed me and even dried my tears. Ever moving, never quite still, with the comfort you offer, you've supported me even when the going was all uphill. As I look around me, I see you, soft as a breeze, and when needed, as loud as a roar. No mountain, no ocean, no cloud of this world has shared with me since I've grown from a girl. Now I'm a woman, and you're still my friend. You're one of a kind. I call you the wind. Good evening. My name is Jerry Wright Bay, and the title of this is School is Out. When school closed in my hometown, there was a flurry of activity that was unmatched during ordinary times. Segregation was in full force, but the youngsters on Roosevelt Street community found creative outlets that were simple and fun and stenciled memories in my mind that last today. Some of the games we played were well known, like hopscotch, jacks, dodgeball, with a ball that barely bounced, hide and seek, a paddle ball, and more cerebral game, Old maid. We played hot scotch in front yard on the side that the grass would not grow in the Gaithers house. The hard clay was easy to sweep, and the shade from the large chinaberry tree made it an ideal spot to spend the indirect hot South Carolina sun. When we needed a comfort break or just got tired, we placed the stones and the perfect little twig used to draw the hopscotch in the corner of the first step or the porch, where remained like markers for a pet's grave. We easily remembered whose turn it was when the game resumed. That could be next hour, the next day, or any time thereafter. 
Virginia was the champion of the hotchkotch game. Jenny, as she was commonly called, had long skinny legs and her arms were long too. She almost never lost a game and the same time the paddle ball was her game as well. Virginia's dexterity was unsurpassed. A paddle ball could be bought for a quarter at Rose's dime and five and dime and Virginia punched much power behind that repetitive striking of the ball against the paddle. Virginia could paddle from either side. Pow, 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 from the other side. Pow, 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 from the back. Pow, pow, pow. Virginia probably could have been crowned the champion of jacks, the queen of hot scotch, and the paddle ball. Virginia's ability to gauge and time her strike was like the present-day professional tennis player. Virginia would stick out that tip of her tongue and it, as it trailed her lips and innocently she moved her feet, anticipating <laughs> meeting the paddle, pow, pow, pow. In hot scotch, she leaped like a frog in the squares with minimal effort. Because Virginia was older than Maggie, her sister, and my best friend, and Virginia usually owned a paddle ball. She had a reputation of playing with questionable fairness. <laughs> if there was a question about Virginia's execution in the Jane, what would she do? She pompously refused to give up the paddle ball, walk away paddling, and announced that the game was over. <laughs> and in the process, leaving us arguing about her playing unfairly and ineffectively, denying her sister Maggie or me the chance to play. Paddle balls did not last long. Once the rubber string broke and it was repaired by tying that little knot to reconnect it, the challenge of the game was severely diminished. The announcement that someone on the street had a new paddle ball brought excitement that equaled the news that a colored person would be on television. When Jax became old and or one or two got missing, a small, small stone was used as a substitute. The old made cards were used until they were almost completely worn out. Dancing was another activity that consumed a lot of time equally for us teenagers who had a, a romantic interest. In their early start as entertainers, Little Richard and James Brown were popular to slow drag translate dance slowly while in a tight embrace <laughs> was the popular dance step for a fast coordinated hand dance to Little Richard and his tutti frutti, tutti frutti. One could go to Mariah Jackson's store with a dime hit up little Richard and James Brown and with his please, 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 please hit. For my 10 cents, buying a bag of wise potato chips and a six ounce Coca-Cola was a better choice. <laughs> 10 cents went a long way, but it not, did not go long enough to buy potato chips, a cola, and a vinyl record. Reasoning aloud that the teenagers brought records by their idols. And that was that. Young men and women put away childish games when they grew up. Activities brought more fulfillment. We were not allowed to attend the city park where the large swimming pool and the outdoor grills that sometimes sent the smell of burgers and hot dogs waffling through the air over the tall pines and water oaks that served as a natural dividing line 
and barrier to keep the citizens apart. The country sounds of the Everly Brothers or Elvis or others of their musical preference could be heard late into the night from the well-lit park long after darkness and the gnats and mosquitoes has sent us inside for the close of the day. After bath time and before bedtime, we gathered on one's front porch singing songs and just talking. This was how children who lived on Roosevelt Street spent a typical Sunday until the advent of the civil rights. The community went full throttle when gossip that Lonnie Mobley had was hired at the work at the A&P, which was around the time in the early to mid-60s when about four white people, two male, two female civil rights organizers appeared on Roosevelt Street and announced a canvassing meeting scheduled. It was billed as a picnic and everybody who attended could bring a dish. If Lonnie's hiring caused trouble outside of our community, we were not aware. Colored people continued to go to the entrance to buy, back entrance to buy the big scoop of pet hand-dipped ice cream. We continued to purchase 10 cents worth of cashews or peanuts freshly cooked at the vat of hot oil from Rose's Five and Dime. Colored men continued to congregate under the tree behind King's Liquor Store, a couple of buildings down from the A&P. We continued to buy clothes and shoes from Belk's department store where the white clerks called older colored people by their first name or addressed them as auntie or uncle. We continued to say yes ma'am and yes sir to all adults no matter color of the skin. And when we walked the distance from Roosevelt Street to Main Street, about a half mile or so, we crossed the street. If white people were sitting on their porch, we crossed the street. When colored people were sitting on their porch, we were apt to be pulled into a long conversation by well-meaning older people who did not value the fact that we were using up our leisure time by being asked all sorts of questions <laughs> that were of no interest to us. So being smart, we crossed the street in the colored section too, <laughs> face to face. Conversation, word of mouth, was the most available way to communicate, as only a few people had a telephone. And children on my street devoutly followed the rules concerning curfews and such. So to be held up by a stream of questions concerning members of the household was just not welcome. <laughs> questions like, how's your mama doing? Did she hear from any folk up the road? Translated from relatives in Baltimore or New Jersey. Those questions cannot be answered impatiently or with any hint of agitation or disrespect <laughs> because word of mouth worked both ways. An act of disrespect from children traveled as fast as lightning would strike. So to avoid well-meaning colored neighbors, yes, we crossed the street and gave a wave in a <laughs> The solution to any potential conflict was to avoid it. But slowly, we were provided with outlets to appreciate being out of school for the summer. Relatives from the city came to visit, or a child was born, or some other milestone passed. All common, ordinary occurrences whose impact helped thread the fabric of the segregated neighborhood. But it was innocence the simplicity of the times 
that forged many relationships and episodes in life whose memory should never fade completely. Thank you. Hello. My name is Whitney C. I was invited by Shabazz earlier today. Um, I was happy to find, I was like, you know, I need to find a writer's forum or some kind of group I can come to weekly because we all need to grow, you know, and um, that's all it is. Uh, Okay, so I'm going to do this quick poem called I Couldn't Help It. (sighs) The content is, I don't know. Anyway, let's go. (laughs) It is, uh, yes. (laughs) But it's personal. I don't want to die missing you. And I don't want you at my funeral wishing you could have been a better lover. I writhe underneath my my mother's shadow. Protection from the world we share. Knowing if my life is laying on the concrete bare, it would have been partially your fault. No, maybe all your fault. Neglected of care. Loosened to struggle. I'm a pretty fish and my water is low. The bottom is now my everything. I've sacrificed my everything in one moment, and your yesterdays are left lurking through my corridors, in my private corners, in your side of my bed, in my tub, in my kitchen sink, in your child's eyes, around wine glasses tucked inside lyrics, inside grit, and wooden tips of tobacco, but sweat on my walls, PG-13, I guess. (laughs) It's no point in scrubbing them now, I left them alone too along with the physical of you. You stalk my movements through the city, show up, look guilty, and leave. My shrugs don't let my shrugs don't get to you the way I intended them to. You take it as though I want to care, but actually I'm just cursed to. Don't mistake my smile for kind heartedness. None of that belongs to you. Not even these feelings I expose. Memories are all over the place and I don't want you to die missing me. So I'll smile when you don't deserve it the most and hide behind my mother's shadow until it is safe to come out and love again. Thank you.